Coal miners in one community, they've been on strike now for months. Working as long as 12 hours a day, seven days a week, in some of the most dangerous conditions. I really think that the labor movement is the single greatest force for democracy in the history of the United States. The story of Alabama is a story of not just resilience, but of militancy. I You're listening to Alabama's only union talk radio show, The Valley Labor Report, with Adam Keller and Jacob Morrison. Hello, Tennessee Valley. This is The Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison, here with my co-host and fellow agitator, Adam Keller, and we are broadcasting live online from the and on the radio from the heart of the Tennessee Valley, the Spice Radio Studio in Huntsville, Alabama. Today, Alabama conservatives want children to go back to work. We also talked to Jennifer Scherer about state labor policy across the country. The UAW's Sean Fain endorsed Joe Biden. We're going to be talking about and reacting to that. All that and more on today's program. If you want to be part of the show today, we've got a phone number. The line will be open in the second half of the program, in overtime. So get that number ready, 844-899-TVLR is the number, 844-899-8857. You can also leave us a voicemail throughout the week, and we might respond to it on the next program. If you haven't gotten enough of us by the time that we wrap up here on the radio, or if you just want to see what we're up to throughout the week, you can find us anywhere you find anything online at The Valley Labor Report. We're on Twitter, Facebook, wherever you get your podcasts, TikTok, all at The Valley Labor Report. We also have written content on our website, tvlr.fm. You can sign up for our newsletters there. Uh, Just a reminder, your support helps us stay on the air. We could not do it without our uh, sponsors and donors. If you want to make a one-time or recurring donation to the project, you can do that at our website as well, tvlr.fm slash donate. You can also buy our merch or become a patron at patreon.com slash Report. And finally, if you're a member of a union, then please do think about getting your local to sponsor the show because we could not do it without the support of organized labor. That's right. And let me add a disclaimer that any viewpoints or opinions expressed in this program belong solely to their author and do not necessarily represent any organization or sponsor. We welcome all of our listeners, whether you're on YouTube, Facebook, Unclaimed Mysteries Internet Radio, WBNN, WZZA, WHIV, or through your favorite podcast app, We are proud to be part of the Labor Radio Podcast Network and encourage our listeners to check that out. As most of you know, we are not media professionals, just some diehard union brothers who believe that Alabama and the South's labor movement and working class deserve a bigger platform. We're hoping this project can make a difference on that front, and we could not do it without you. So we want to thank everyone for tuning in, whether you're a loyal fan or a first-time listener. We appreciate you spending some time with us this morning. 
And we're going to jump right into last week in Southern Labor because we've got a lot of stuff on the program today, so we want to get to it as much of it as possible. So without further ado, here is what workers in the U.S. South and the American colonies were up to on uh, from January 20th to the 26th. In new campaigns, we've got three workers at Victory Toyota in Triadelphia, West Virginia, filing for a union election with the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. Workers likely pushed by their employer filed a petition to decertify the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers, IAMAW, as the union representing 18 workers at Rail Crew Express in Thayer, Missouri. The National Right to Work Foundation is supporting the decertification attempt. The employer filed a petition for a union election after a majority of the 20 workers at a Starbucks in New Orleans, Louisiana, demonstrated support for unionization with Starbucks Workers United. The International Union of Security, Police, and Fire Professionals of America, SPFPA, appears to be raiding a unit of 31 workers at Golden SVCS in Washington, D.C., who are currently represented by the Governed United Security Professionals. 14 workers at Rising for Justice filed a petition to expand their bargaining unit at Rising for Justice in uh, Washington, D.C. 27 workers at Southeastern Paper Company in College Park, Georgia, filed a petition to hold a union election with the Teamsters Local 528. 42 workers at Collins Landing Systems in Haltom City, Texas, filed a petition to hold a union election with the United Auto Workers, UAW. Seven workers at Lidos in Merritt Island, Florida, filed a petition to hold a union election with the Motion Picture and Video Laboratory Technicians, Allied Crafts, and Government Employees, Local 789, which is an IATSE affiliate. This petition was withdrawn in the same week. 97 workers at U.S. Sugar Savannah Refinery in Port Wentworth, Georgia, filed a petition to hold a union election with the Teamsters Local 528. 74 workers at Lycee Francois de la Nouvelle Orleans, which is a free public charter school following both Louisiana State Curriculum and French National Curriculum in New Orleans, Louisiana. 74 workers there filed a petition to hold a union election uh, with the United Teachers of New Orleans, an AFT affiliate. 15 workers at the San Antonio Report in San Antonio, Texas, filed a petition to hold a union election with the News Guild's C- uh, News Guild CWA's Media Guild of the West. In election results, the petition to hold a union election with the United Federation of LEOs among 20 security guards at Christus Health was withdrawn, as was the petition to hold a union election with the United Steelworkers, USW, among three workers at Valero in Memphis, Tennessee. The petition to hold a union election with the UAW Local 214 among four workers at the American Red Cross was withdrawn, as was the petition to decertify the Transport Workers Union, TWU, Local 513, as the representative of 21 workers at Menzies Aviation in Dallas, Texas, uh, meaning the union remains. 66 uh, security guards at Akima Global Services in Donna, Texas, voted unanimously in favor of unionization with the United Government Security Officers of America. Five workers at Wells Fargo Bank in Daytona Beach, Florida, voted 4-1 to one in favor of unionization with the CWA. Eleven workers at CMAX in New Braunfels, Texas, voted 9-1 to one in favor of unionization with the Teamsters, Local 657. Twenty workers at Gallows Point Resort in St. John, Virginia, 
Virgin Islands voted 7-12 to 12 in favor of decertifying the Seafarers International Union of North America. Twelve workers at Asplund Tree Expert in Lexington, Kentucky voted 9-2 to two in favor of unionization with the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, IBEW, Local 369. Three workers at High Point Cannabis in St. Louis, Missouri voted 0-2 to two against unionization with the United Food and Commercial Workers, UFCW, Local 655. Ten workers at MV Transportation in West Palm Beach, Florida voted unanimously in favor of unionization with the Amalgamated Transit Union, ATU, Local 1577. Four workers at MCOR Government Services in Alexandria, Virginia voted unanimously in favor of unionization with the International Union of Operating Engineers, IUE, Local 99. 64 workers at Morton Salt in Cape Canaveral, Florida, voted 30 to 30 in their union election, and ties go to the employer, meaning the USW will not represent these workers at this time. 1,232 workers at Mangual's Office Cleaning Service in Ganaibo, Puerto Rico, voted 348 to 179 in favor of unionization with the Service Employees International Union, SEIU Local 1996. And finally, 24 workers at Rainbow Blossom in Louisville, Kentucky, voted 13 to 2 in favor of unionization with the UFCW Local 227. In strikes and bargaining updates, after the merger between... Microsoft and Activision has gone through. Microsoft is now laying off an astounding 1,900 workers in just the gaming department. Some in labor supported the merger, including the Communication Workers of America, which represents some game workers at Microsoft, though none that are affected by the layoffs. When the acquisition was completing in October, Completed in October, the CWA said this quote represents a milestone in the effort to improve working conditions in the video game industry because of the neutrality agreement the company signed to garner the union's support for the merger. United Campus Workers CWA at Jacksonville State in Alabama are calling for a $15 an hour minimum wage by the end of 2024 and $17 an hour by the end of 2025. Workers there currently make as little as $8.25 an hour. The union went public last year and is wall-to-wall open to any employee. The American Federation of Musicians, AFM, are in negotiations with the Alliance of Motion Pictures and Television Studios, AMPTP, and held a rally last week to support the lack of movement, to protest the lack of movement, and IATSE pledged their support. Contract expiration is fast approaching for Teamsters at Anheuser-Busch and without a contract. The union issued a warning to the company to sign a contract or face a nationwide strike and boycotts. The Teamsters are planning on another roundtable with Donald Trump next week, and controversy is bubbling up around this as it was revealed that O'Brien sent a memo to all general executive board members mandating that they attend the meeting after whispers of some protesting the meeting by not attending. Southern General Executive Board Member John Palmer replied with a stern memo responding, (laughs) indicating that not only does he refuse to attend the meeting with Donald Trump, but... Palmer argues that the meeting itself violates the Teamsters' constitution based on its prohibition on association with insurrectionists and could even be grounds for expulsion from the union of participants in the meeting. 
In politics and legislation, the CWA became the latest union to endorse a ceasefire in Gaza as the humane position is becoming more and more mainstream in the labor movement. The SEIU signed on to calls for a ceasefire in Gaza a few weeks ago. The Los Angeles Metro Board of Directors is set to approve a major contract worth $730 million to a Hyundai subsidiary. The UAW and other community groups are pressuring the board not to award the contract until Hyundai agrees to a nationwide community benefits agreement, agreement, particularly given Hyundai's recent history union busting and abusing children, immigrants, and prisoners. The UAW endorsed Joe Biden for president last week. The timing was unexpected on the part of many, but the move itself was not, particularly the timing uh, uh, being unexpected, particularly given the Biden administration's refusal to tow the union's line on a ceasefire in Gaza. Biden's staff even threatened elected UAW leaders with canceling his speech if these UAW leaders did not take off their UAW for a ceasefire pin. The UAW leader did not budge, proving the threat from the White House an empty one. In internal union affairs, the new Bureau of Labor Statistics numbers for union membership are out, and union density declined yet again, falling from 10.1 to 10.0%, dangerously close to single-digit unionization rates. This is not because unions lost members, though. On the contrary, there were 139,000 new union members in 2023, but non-union job growth outpaced these numbers. Nationwide, the trend was for union density to fall in union strongholds like the North and the West and increase in more anti-union areas like the South. This includes Alabama, which saw an increase in both union membership and union density for the second year in a row. And finally, we have heard reports of the Alabama Education Association raiding both the Birmingham and Central Alabama American Federation for Teachers locals. We will hopefully have more to report on this next week, but just a reminder that the AEA is very explicit that they are not a union and so therefore are not subject to any of the... uh, what pleasantries that uh, the AFL-CIO unions might award some within the House of Labor. And with that, we're going to go ahead and head to a break. We're going to be right back with Jennifer Scherer talking about state labor policies across the country. Really excited for this conversation. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Benefit Architects has proudly supported union members and union-made products for over 35 years. If you are a federal employee and an AFGE member, you're eligible for hundreds of dollars in money-saving benefits, including group life insurance, dental insurance, and AFLAC insurance. Additionally, if you're a union member but don't work for the federal government, you can still qualify for several of these money-saving policies. So give Tate Cure a call at 256-215-6700. Six nine for details and to enroll. Again, that is Tate Hewer at 256-215-6769. In Alabama, more than 200,000 of our friends and family members are living without health care coverage. Often folks can't stay healthy enough even to keep their jobs. We can fix this. It's time for us to find a way to close the health care coverage gap so that people can remain at work 
Let's make this a priority. Let's close this gap and cover Alabama. To learn more and how you can help, visit CoverAlabama.org. The attorneys at Maples, Tucker & Jacobs have stood with the working people of Alabama for over 40 years, providing skilled legal representation for your workplace injury claims. When you are injured on the job, it can be a scary time. The attorneys at Maples, Tucker & Jacobs have the experience to guide you through the process to make sure that you and your family are properly taken care of and your rights are protected. If you need help, call the attorneys at Maples, Tucker & Jacobs at 855-617-9333 or visit online at www.mtnj.com. No representation is made that the quality of legal services provided is greater than the quality of legal services provided by other law firms. Support for the Valley Labor Report comes from the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers Union. Learn more by visiting www.ifpte.org. Attention union members, membership organizations, podcasters, or anyone with a payment processing need. The future is here, and your organization needs to be prepared by working with Unionly. With Unionly, your union or organization can take payments on a mobile device, eliminating processing fees, giving you a better price than other payment processing methods, while at the same time supporting a union-friendly business with a specialized skill set to meet your needs. Your members will thank you when they pay their dues at their convenience without waiting in line to deposit cash or check. Start preparing for the future today by calling 206-595-8631 or visiting unionly.io. Are you looking for a better future, a career that can have you set for life, and to be a part of something that's bigger than yourself? If you are, then consider a skilled trades apprenticeship with the International Union of Painters and Allied Trades. The work of IUPAT is all around us, from the industrial painters who work on the bridges to drywall finishers, floor coverers, the glazers who install the glass in our skylines, and so much more. With an IUPAT apprenticeship, you earn while you learn and receive benefits while learning the trade, including a pension. We provide world-class education free of charge. That's right, no student debt. Our starting salaries for apprentices that graduate is above the national median salary with benefits for entire families. And you have the flexibility to take your trade wherever you'd like in the country to work. IUPAT District Council 77 covers our entire region, so give Adam Booth a call at 205-603-3142 for more information. Again, that phone number is 205-603-3142. Come build a better future with us today and join IUPAC. I'm attorney Tommy Senyard. When you've been injured and need help, you need a lawyer who's with you. Senyard Law. You need attorneys always available to take care of you. Senyard Law. And keep you in the loop. It's your case. You need to know what's happening. Senyard Law. And never a charge to meet with us to evaluate your case. Senyard Law. A new firm, but an old name. One that will stay with you every step of the way. Senior Law, the name with proven results. Support for this program is provided by the International Association for Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local Lodge 44 in Decatur, Alabama. Learn more at IAMAW44.org.
Labor creates all wealth. All wealth should go to labor. And you're listening to the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison here with Adam Keller. We have a great guest uh, coming on the show now. Uh, She is the director of the State Worker Power Initiative at the Economic Policy Institute and the Economic Analysis and Research Network. She is a member of the... Uh, IFPTE Local 70 Nonprofit Employees Union. Uh, Jennifer Scherer, welcome to the Valley Labor Report. Thanks for the time this morning. Morning, great to see you guys. Great to see you. Yeah, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Uh, So Jacob gave you a little bit of an introduction, but if you could just sort of tell us a little bit about who you are and how you got involved in the movement and what led you up to this current position you're in right now. Okay, sure. So I've been at Economic Policy Institute for um, about three years now and came there to um, work on, uh, as you said, the State Worker Power Initiative, which is really um, EPI's commitment to supporting um, a group of state and local organizations around the country that have been part for over uh, 20 years of what we call our EARN Network, Economic Analysis and Research Network. So um, I think as some folks might know already, you know, Economic Policy Institute is a longstanding, uh, founded in uh, the 1980s, um, nonpartisan nonprofit think tank committed to focusing on working people's issues um, and looking at economic conditions um, and policy choices that affect low and middle income workers, particularly. And um, we support this network of state and local organizations around the country that are also doing that in partnership with labor and grassroots organizations in their home states. Um, And part of EPI's commitment to um, focusing um, even more than we have in the past on some of those state policy questions is the recognition that state policies um, just as much, and in some cases, depending on where you live in the country, might shape your um, Uh, economic outcomes just as much as what's happening in Congress um, or at the federal level. And particularly at moments um, like right now in our history, where there's a lot of uh, gridlock and roadblocks to Congress um, reforming things like our federal labor law, um, states have an incredibly huge role to play in shaping um, outcomes for workers. Um, So that's what I focus on. And Before coming to EPI, I was director of the Labor Center at University of Iowa, been a labor educator for most of my career, um, doing worker education um, and working with, you know, a long list of different unions on uh, building up their um, leadership development programs and um, worker rights education. So in Iowa primarily, but in uh, partnership with a lot of unions in the Midwest. And you had some experience with UE, right? Yeah, I guess you asked me to go sort of all the way back. <laughs> um, my first um, uh, opportunity to be part of a union was all the way back in grad school um, when I transferred uh, kind of in the degree uh, to University of Iowa and became a teaching assistant. Um, the grad employees had just had their union election, so I was involved very early on in Um, sort of the formation of that uh, bargaining unit in the late 1990s and um, got to be part of some of the bargaining committees, um, was the local president um, and and vice president 
uh, did a lot of um, door knocking and membership building in those early years of um, building up a new union. So that was some of my first um, union experience. Um, also worked on some organizing campaigns with um, that, that UE was heading up at the time. And um, that was a great way to enter the labor movement um, in, in the late 90s and also sort of the height of um, the, the global justice movement, which um, I also had a lot of opportunities to be part of um, for several years in, into the early 2000s. That's awesome. Yeah, we're big fans of UE here on the Valley Labor Report. Uh, and also something that your story really, you know, brings up for me that I think gets into what we're going to talk about today with union membership numbers and, and union growth uh, is the experience of organizing at the grad level or as a grad student or organizing on college campuses more broadly. And that seems to be a, a major trend over the past few years, this, you know, energy on college campuses uh, with various levels of workers, right? Uh, from the professors to the grad students to, you know, the hourly employees on campus. Um, and one thing that we are, are wondering is, is how much is that going to boost the movement long term, right? Are these folks going to be organizing on college campuses and then, much like you, you know, that lead them down a path of, of organizing uh, and unionizing in other sectors and other industries. And, and I'm just curious if, like, have y'all done any research on that? Or, you know, what are the trends y'all are seeing? And, and, and do, you, do you agree with that assessment that there, there could be some, you know, long-term gains that we're going to see out of this kind of organizing? Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, you know, there's it, uh, from my generation of folks, there's certainly a whole cadre of people who were um, leaders of grad employee unions in the 90s who went into various parts of the labor movement, um, you know, as uh, as organizers or researchers or labor educators, which ended up being my path. Um, and I think what the numbers tell us from the last couple of years that just an incredible explosion um, and success, just, ast you know, astounding jaw-dropping um, election victories um, on campuses across the country the last few years means that um, for this generation of folks who are coming through um, grad programs right now, that the, the um, numbers of people who are having the experience the ability to experience um, not just being part of a union, but forming a new union, right? right? I mean, that that is life-changing for um, for people who are at the heart of it. And you take that experience with you, whether, whether folks go into academia, um, you know, and have a new understanding and a new ability to um, uh, be part of or to um, grow faculty unions, you know, faculty are far less uh, on a percentage basis, um, you know, unionized than grad employees at this point in our country. And, uh, or if folks go into other um, other careers, because, you know, we know that part of what's driving um, the organizing is folks' recognition that there's a, you know, just a crisis in the academic labor market. And a lot of people won't go, won't end up in uh, faculty positions. They'll end up in other, uh, other roles in other careers, but you carry that experience with you. And um, knowing how to form a union or um, uh, take a leadership role in a union anywhere you go is um, something that is going to be transformative, I think, in a lot of sectors, potentially. Right, right. Yeah, I, I really agree. I think there's just so much potential there with, uh, you know, leadership development. 
uh, because I agree, like it is a life changing experience. The relationship building, uh, the the feelings of solidarity and collective action, uh, you know, that you really do feel. It's more than just like something you read about or you study. Uh, becomes a lived experience, and I, I really do hope to see how that, you know, I can't wait to see how that really trickles out into the broader economy. So, you know, we talked a little bit about the numbers. Let's just, let's talk about it. The BLS, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, put out the new union membership data for the year. Uh, Jacob mentioned some of the highlights in our last week in Southern Labor Report. You know, the there is growth, but not fast enough to keep up with population. So density did drop slightly from 10.1 to 10.0. In Alabama, it's a little bit brighter story. We continued to grow. Uh, It went from 7.2 to 7.5 union density. And just to remind folks, union density is the percentage of the employees who are union members, right? So 7.5% of workers in Alabama are union members, according to this report. So, Jennifer, I know you study these numbers closely. Uh, What are some of your takeaways and reactions to this? Yeah, and I'll just say, you know, one thing right off the bat for anybody who's looking at the EPI analysis of the numbers is that our report looks um, more at the representation numbers. So that's, um, you know, where when BLS asks people, not just are you are you a member of a union, but are you covered by a union contract? And we do that because, you know, part of what we're trying to assess is what's the overall economic impact. So the union density, if you look at representation, like who's covered by a union contract, is a tiny bit higher than the, the membership number um, that you cited because there are always more folks who are covered by a union contract than our than our members. So if, you, if you're people are noticing a discrepancy, that's why. So um one thing that really sticks out to go back to the conversation that you started about uh, young people organizing these days is that that um, the increase in overall, um, you know, the growth in numbers of union members is being totally driven by young workers right now, right? So unionization among workers under age 45 grew by about 230,000 last year. Um, which is pretty phenomenal given the obstacles and the um, stacked deck that workers of any age continue to face when they're um, organizing. Um, right. And right. the other because, thing. And I was just going to say, like, when I think about young workers, a lot of times we're talking service industry jobs, right? You know, some of the highest profile campaigns would be Starbucks and REI and Trader Joe's. Right. Where there's vicious union busting happening. So I think that that is very you know, noteworthy to see that gain among young workers. And, you know, there's a the, the data don't kind of break down for us in terms of where um, uh, where where are folks coming from. And so, you know, we know there's a mix behind that, but it's really interesting to see those demographics begin to shift. Um, and I think the other thing that kind of pops out in the data from last year is that um uh, workers of color are also d- driving the the segments um, of uh, uh, in, and when you break down the demographics, it's the increases are being driven by young workers and workers of color. I think that's something you can see really clearly. Yeah, that's interesting. And you know, we we've seen the popularity polls come out, and uh, some of the numbers I've seen is that eighty eight percent of young folks, people under thirty, approve of labor unions. Uh, which is, you know, 
that's remarkable. Um, I, I don't know that video games and pizza would poll that high under, you know, with people under 30, like 88% is huge. Um, but obviously there's this disconnect between people's approval of unions, people's desire to join unions and their ability to join unions. Uh, and so you, you mentioned that, that the obstacles that folks are facing. Uh, and, and could you talk a little bit more about how how is the system not set up well to organize? Yeah, I mean, so for private sector workers, um, trying to go through the various hurdles um, to get to a union contract, our federal law says on paper um, that our country is committed to a policy of promoting collective bargaining. Um, uh, in reality, the law that we have um, has been both amended pretty heavily in the mid 20th century um, and eroded by a series of um, court decisions and board decisions um, over the decades that have stacked the deck, deck pretty unfairly against workers. Now, obviously, that doesn't mean that it's impossible to organize. Workers are doing it and succeeding all over our country in pretty much every sector today. Um, but employers have a huge advantage um, in the sense that the law does not penalize um, their um, uh, hostility uh, toward workers' um, right to form a union. So, you know, typically when workers start the process of organizing, as a lot of your listeners know, you know, employers do everything um, that they can think of to try to um, impede that process. That might be um, trying to scare people, trying to threaten people, having one-on-one -on -one meetings um, with them. We call those captive audience meetings. Um, in some cases, crossing the line into illegal behavior uh, that includes firing people who are leading the organizing efforts. And a lot of employers are comfortable uh, doing any and all of those things um, because they know that the consequences for doing them are minimal to none, right? So the, the most that the labor board is typically um, able to do with the tools at their disposal, if uh, you know workers then go through the long painful process of filing uh, board charges about illegal employer behavior, is that um, the employer is going to get um, uh, you know a notice saying you need to stop this behavior. If they fired somebody or somebody lost wages or you know something of economic consequence, the employer uh, you know is told that they got to pay the back wages and restore what was lost. But for for most employers, you know they're doing uh, in in terms of maintaining their um, position of um, unequal power in a particular workplace. Um, they consider that a cost of doing business, right? And to them, probably a, not a very steep cost um, of doing business. So our law is incredibly weak, um, puts a lot of obstacles in, in workers' way. And um, I think the other thing that uh, is actually pretty phenomenal about the 2023 uh, BLS statistics is that we're seeing um, any increase at all measurable at this point um, in the private sector union numbers means that workers are are being very persistent in their organizing efforts um, mm. in spite of all those odds. You well, know, the other I, thing that, I, that's... No, go ahead. I was just going to say the other thing that's a reality about the data is that the data don't fully pick up or account for, um, you know, organizing efforts that are, that are in process for workers that mm. have gone, even won their union election, but don't have a contract yet. You know, a lot of those things are not going to show up mm. yet in the numbers. 
That's right. true. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Well, I, you know, you mentioned that about the, the, the uneven playing field and all this is, is incredibly true. And, uh, you know, especially in a place like Alabama and, and what's really kind of interesting about the numbers is that in the places where there is more support for unions. And I think, you know, in particular in Michigan where, uh, you know, it was the site of, it was really, you know, kind of a center of the UAW strike. Um, they just repealed right to work. They reinstituted prevailing wages. Um, you know, there was a lot of movement in Michigan and they actually, they, they lost union density. And I think they actually lost numerically numbers of members. Um, and, in the public sector, where generally it's kind of easier to, to organize than in the private sector, particularly at the federal level right now, um, the public sector lost members, whereas, like you said, uh, you know, kind of astoundingly, <laughs> there was, uh, you know, a, a reasonable increase in private sector union membership. And, you know, so the trend seemed to be in places where it's easier to organize, there was less organization and then in places where it's more difficult to organize, there was more organization, you know, like public sector falling, private sector increasing, Michigan falling, Alabama increasing. What do you make of, of that? So I would love to talk about the public sector because that is a complicated story that I think um, we we don't have a real like clear, coherent national um, story about because it mm. differs so much state by state. Right. So um, one thing that you just said that's absolutely true is that at the federal level, if we just pull out only public public employees in um, federal government jobs, we see an uptick, actually, an increase in union membership last year. However, the vast majority of folks working in uh, public service are in state and local governments. So that's right. everybody from state employees to uh, school employees, teachers, you know, probably being numerically the largest uh, among occupations in public service. And uh, on a state by state basis, the laws under which um, public employees at the state and local government level work vary wildly, like mm. just totally different. So we have states still in the country where there's an outright ban on having a union contract for state and local government workers. So we have to keep that in mind. And then we have uh, you know, some states that have very robust, longstanding, um, protective union laws for state and local government employees. And I, what I think is really clear when we look at the state and local government um, unionization rates, which did fall last year, um, that's where we're seeing the decreases. Uh, you know, if you pull out the public sector, um, you know, we noted it's kind of remarkable. Private sector union membership went up last year, but we are seeing losses in state and local government unionization levels across the country. And that has to do with uh, both the ongoing, very unrelenting attack on union rights at the state level in at least a dozen states in the country. Right. So if you are a teacher in Florida right now, mm. you are very much feeling like uh, the ability to even hold on to the union you already have is under assault because the state legislature each year has, um, you know, proposed and this past year 
um, continue to enact more and more policies that make it difficult for state and local government employees to unionize. Um, and we're seeing that all over the country. So, you know, you you mentioned Michigan as an example, right? Michigan is one of the states, along with Wisconsin, Florida. I mean, there's just a long list where since 2010, state legislatures and governors have, uh, in many cases, targeted public employee unions for uh, with policies that make it more difficult for people to unionize. So when you look at Michigan, and even though um, some of their state laws very significantly began to change last year, um, though the the effects of that over decade of mm. um, attacks, I think people are still living with there. And Michigan did repeal its right to work law um, last March, but that has not yet gone into effect. In fact, mm. the the repeal goes into effect next month in February. Uh, so just to say, um, you know, the, the impact of the policies now being reversed, many of those anti-union state policies being reversed in Michigan will still take some time to take hold, uh, right. would be one, one thing that I think it's worth noting. Um, but I think uh, the assault on public employee unions at the state and local level deserves much more attention from the labor movement generally. Um, and that, uh, you know, the the national story of an uptick in strikes and an uptick in interest in um, uh, petitioning for union elections across the country is absolutely real. And what is also real at the same time is that um, in some in many, many states across the country, longstanding um, public employee uh, unions are under assault. Uh, you know, and I lived in Iowa for a long time. And that is absolutely the story of my state as well. Um, not long after Scott Walker passed Act 10 in Wisconsin, um, our state legislature, uh, once it became a majority Republican in um, after 2016, uh, one of the first things they prioritized was demolishing what had been a very longstanding um, Public Employee uh, Relations Act. And so public employee unions have um, suffered uh, really stark um, impacts from that. Many people losing most parts of their contracts and, uh, you know, having to come up with um, all kinds of new uh, measures just to keep their unions alive since 2017. Right. right. So, yeah, well, absolutely. They're so embattled, particularly in Florida. And I think that I'm really glad you brought that up. Uh, it can't be brought up enough about what's happening there in Florida. I mean, and certainly in the state of Alabama, where public sector workers don't have any collective bargaining anywhere in our state. Uh, I think it is something that, to your point, the labor movement has to take seriously, that there are workers working in local and state government who want to organize, who want contracts. And so um, it's. I, I really appreciate the work that EPI does on state policy um, and the emphasis on state-level policies and local policies as well. Uh, so we wanted to kind of switch gears and talk about the state policies. And I know you could give us some examples of like states that are doing better in terms of uh, supporting organizing uh, and, the, of course, the states like Florida that are making it harder. But the one issue that is just continuing to come up in Alabama and elsewhere in Iowa as well is child labor. 
And so we wanted to, to mention child labor because we have uh, this group in Alabama called the Alabama Policy Institute that receives, you know, Koch brother money. And they are now pushing legislation to remove barriers for minors to go to work. Uh, and Jacob, you can you can chime in more with with some of the details of this. But we wanted to, to talk about the child labor trends because that is something you know, that just boggles my mind that in 2024, our labor movement is having to fight back against child labor. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, you study state policy and you see what's happening across the country. Um, I assume that, you know, Alabama's not alone in, in these proposals to loosen child labor laws, right? Yeah, and thank you for telling me about Alabama Policy Institute, because I that I'll have to look that one up. But um, definitely bad. not alone. <laughs> They're real bad. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so we have been tracking um, state attacks on child labor laws for the last uh, year now. And Alabama if, uh, is, is not alone in that regard. So we've got over 22 states, I believe, at this point that where we've seen uh, proposals just in the last two to three years to weaken child labor laws at the state level. So this is a very coordinated um, multi-industry push across the country um, with uh, sometimes very clearly stated long range goal of rolling back federal standards eventually for the whole country. Um, so, you know, this is sort of some of the same um, industry groups that ever since the 1938 Fair Labor Standards Act was passed, you know, that's the law that put in place uh, minimum wage overtime and child labor protections for the first time in our, our, in our history, has had a goal of, uh, uh, you know, wiping out those standards. So um, those, those um, groups that are pushing the measures at the, the, the rollbacks at the state level often include state chapters of the National Restaurant Association, uh, state chambers of commerce, um, National Federation of Independent Business, their state chapters. But then there's also, you know, um, a lot of influence from some uh, billionaire-backed sort of dark money groups. There's a there's a think tank called Foundation for Government Accountability that is Florida-based, but that has been very instrumental in um, writing many of the child labor bills that have been introduced in states the last few years and uh, coordinating their passage in state legislatures where um, where they have a lot of influence, along with, you know, sort of the more familiar Koch-backed groups like Americans for Prosperity and others. Right. Um, so. Um, well, I was just I was just going to jump in and say that, you know, the 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 range of these proposals have have kind of varied. There's been some, I mean, just really extreme stuff there was one recently uh having difficulty remembering the state but that proposed to allow children to work uh eight hours on a school night and uh, 40 hours in a school week um and, and it's you know that that's kind of bizarre there there have been some to even allow 14 year olds in the coal mines uh you know and and that's it's amazing that there's even anybody willing to put their names to something like that. It's a little bit less extreme what the Alabama Policy Institute is proposing here in Alabama. Uh, but it's still 
it's still pretty extreme. What they want to do is they want to remove the requirement for schools to sign off on 14 and 15 year olds being able to work right now in Alabama. There's a requirement for schools to say like, you know, yay, verily this 14 year old is doing good in school. And so, you know, we sign off on them having, you know, a small little part-time job or whatever. And so they're, and they're couching it in this language of like parents rights and parents should be able to determine not the state, you know, how good their kid is doing in school. And it's like, I don't know. It's pretty kind of objective measurements. You know, you can see, you can just see if the kid is doing well in school. Are they making A's and B's or are they making, you know, C's and D's and F's, right? If they're the latter, then they probably shouldn't be working after school. They should probably be studying. Um, And I'm just, I'm, I'm interested in if you have found any tension in the the uh, among the conservative block while this is being pushed because i think the obvious thing is that the the beneficiary of all of these new loosening of, of child labor laws are going to be like poultry plants utilizing undocumented children to undercut you know the wages of immigrant and uh, you know uh, documented immigrant and then you know native born kind of american wages in like poultry plants and stuff uh, or or um or the farms or you know things like this it, it's not you know we're not looking at wasps you know going and and working in in the in, in the fields because of this legislation is there any at all recognition of of the tension there between the anti-immigrant rhetoric coming from the right and then also this almost explicit permission to exploit immigrants yeah i mean i think the this the starting point for this discussion that we sometimes skip over is that we've never eradicated exploitative forms of child labor in the u.s you know Mm. despite maybe what lots of us would like to think. Um, You know, we have um, hundreds of thousands of children working in our agricultural sector, in some cases um, uh, completely legally because we have a double standard in our uh, federal and most state labor laws that um, allows children in some cases as as young as 10 or 12 to work in highly hazardous um, agricultural occupations. Um, and even though our child labor laws have been very important and effective to some extent at doing what we developed a consensus about 100 years ago that we wanted to do as a country, which is try to ensure some measure of equal opportunity and equal access to public education for most children, um, those laws are uh, uneven across the country. And um, they have never been updated since 1938 um, at the federal level. So, you know, when you mention uh, that it sounds kind of shocking that there are some states that now are changing what had been pretty longstanding kind of guardrails around how many hours per week should a student who's still in high school be working or how, how late into the night, you know, can you assign a a 16-year-old to work an overnight shift. Well, the reality, when you start looking into what our state law landscape is, that actually there are states all over the country that never set those guardrails. Mm. (laughs) And so part of what we're seeing in terms of this national coordinated effort to wipe out a lot of existing child labor standards 
is that they've done a really careful analysis, frankly. I hand it to them. They've done a really careful analysis of which states have filled some of the gaps that are in our federal law. So if Alabama's got a work permit system, they're going after that work permit system and trying to eradicate it because they know that's one of the things that's not covered in federal law. Um, so the, the the attacks look different in every state because the industry groups that are trying to roll back the standards are trying to clear the decks and sort of wipe out anything that states have done proactively to go above and beyond the very weak floor that our federal law sets for protecting children and making sure that they can get access to a good education, regardless of what their economic background is, or regardless of their immigration status, right? Right. right. And that is really terrifying. And I, I, and I do see the attacks as very much um, intertwined with ongoing persistent attacks on our public education system more broadly. So this is, you know, these, um, this campaign to wipe out child labor standards is very much coming from the same groups that do not believe in public education because right. they believe in maintaining economic inequality and maintaining um, uh, an underclass of impoverished families who are easy to exploit um, uh, and who are desperate enough to have to accept um, low-wage uh, work and uh, under hazardous conditions, right? So that is the uh, the, the same groups that are, um, uh, you know, I mentioned that Florida, you know, Foundation for Government Accountability Group, their sort of priority package of policy proposals is uh, rolling back child labor standards, but also what they're um, really pushing in a lot of states is things like restricting access to um, food benefits and SNAP, making it harder for people to get Medicaid to, to have health care if you're a poor family, right? So it's this very toxic combination of um, increasing the economic desperation of our poorest families um, while uh, legalizing um, uh, unscrupulous um, exploitative behavior um, of employers who are willing to sort of recruit and hire um, kids for um, long hours, low wages, and exploitative conditions. We've had, I mean, I really, if folks haven't seen them, I highly recommend looking at the, the the journalism that Hannah Dreyer has done at the New York Times in the past yes. year to really humanize um, the conditions that we have young children working in all over the country. Do you think that some of, because there are some that are doing, like you said, like trying to trim, a re, trim away the extra guardrails that states have set up above and beyond federal laws, and what we're talking about in Alabama is that. Uh, but then there, the, the one that I, I talked about earlier is actually explicitly going uh, below the federal floor because it is not federally legal for for children to work 30 or 40 hours in a work week. Um, that, that is that is illegal under federal law. Do you think that there's it, 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 in in parallel with this move to trim away some of the uh, some of the additional guardrails? Do you think there's a move to directly challenge the constitutionality of the uh, Federal Labor Standards Acts as such? There, uh, among some groups, there there is both. Yes, absolutely, and there have definitely been uh, state legislators who have openly said, "I'm I'm aware that what I'm proposing here is in contradiction to current federal law on a certain standard, 
And um, I'm happy about that because I think it'll call it to their attention and Congress should also lower their standard, the mm -hmm. standard too. Some of them are saying that very explicitly. We had a representative in Indiana at a hearing just this week basically said that outright. Right. Um, but I, I mean, I, I hate being the person to have to break this news to folks again and again this past year, but the reality is actually our federal law above um, for um, employers who hire anyone over the age of uh, 15 and above, our federal law doesn't regulate hours, doesn't regulate work yeah. hours for 16-year-olds, 17-year-olds, 18-year-olds. I mean, these high school students, right? These are people who are still in school. And so that is another area where state standards have been so important and so fundamental. And I mean, frankly, states historically were often the leaders and the innovators. A lot of states had standards on factory work and mining and um, uh, work in tobacco fields and many other things prior to the Fair Labor Standards Act because, you know, there was um, concern among policymakers at the state level who could see what was happening to children in these industries long before we had the Fair Labor Standards Act. So, um, I mean, believe it or not, there is no guardrail coming from our federal law because uh, it's never been updated since 1938. Mm. Even, you know, 1938 was a time when the vast majority of people in our country did not complete high school in the working class, right? We live in a different country now, in a different economy. Right. We've made incredible strides on um, opening up educational access, and we live in an economy where we know that uh, young people who lack um, a high school credential or some other uh, sort of um, credential will suffer lifelong consequences often because it limits their economic opportunity and suppresses their earnings for a lifetime, right? right. So so if, if folks are trying to roll back state standards um, to push uh, younger people into low-wage work for longer hours while they're still in high school, putting them at risk for not completing education and not right. um, having that credential, which really, it's really turning back the clock. Um, because it's been amazing to me, uh, you know, this is not an area of research I had delved into until recently, but it's amazing to me to see the kind of stride that a lot of states have made on high school completion rates just in the last 20 or 30 years, right? So that's the kind of, um, that's actually progress. And so when we see that fewer 16-year-olds, for example, are in the labor force than they were in 1970 or 1980, uh, that's actually a good thing. Right. <laughs> they're not in the labor force because they're in school. And what that means is it's setting them up for a better career, a better lifelong income, um, a better set of opportunities for their family in the future. And so, you know, when we've got state representatives in these hearings on child labor laws around this, the country often saying, oh, we're really, you know, bummed out that 30 years ago, we had a higher labor force participation rate among teens. My jaw is just dropping. Right. <laughs> How is that a goal that we're uh, pursuing in the 21st century? Um, it is right. totally I mean, being driven by a set of low-wage industries that want to increase their access to immediate, you know, their immediate access to low-wage labor. That is all this is. There's right.
Right. Absolutely. Well, Jennifer, I know we got to let you go, but I, I just want to thank you for your time and thank you for your work and your research. And I just want to point people to epi.org. That's where you can find out more about the Economic Policy Institute. There's a lot of great information there. Uh, I mean, on policy, on the connection between labor unions and democracy. Uh, there's a great report about the South and our failed economic model called Rooted in Racism that I highly recommend. I know it came out not too too long ago. Uh, so, Jennifer, thanks again for joining us this morning. Keep up the good work and uh, appreciate you. Yeah, take care. Great to talk to you guys. Yeah. All right. Thanks, y'all. So, thanks, Jacob. Appreciate that. Um, yeah, we're going to go ahead and take a break really quick, and we're going to be right back uh, talking about Sean Fain. Stay tuned. In Alabama, more than 200,000 of our friends and neighbors are living without health care coverage. Often folks can't stay healthy enough to keep their jobs. We need to fix this. Let's close the health care coverage gap. To learn more, visit CoverAlabama.org. Support for this program also comes from the Ironworkers, Local 477. So if you are looking for contractors with lower than average EMR and TRIR, uh, they tell me that if you need to know what those mean, then you will. Uh, or if you need to supplement a workforce at any level for any amount of time, short or long term, if you need ironworkers that come trained and certified at no extra cost, or if you need workers from superintendent down to general laborer, and you're looking to start work on a project or you're unhappy with your current contractor situation, you need to call my friend Jeb Miles with the Ironworkers Local 477. They only work with the best in the business, vetted contractors, and can do all kinds of jobs from roofing to steel and bridge erection, from welding to heavy rigging, from structural repairs to machinery alignment, and much more. They supply manpower on four of the five largest projects in North Alabama, so you know they're legit. If you need good quality, safe, efficient, diligent, and knowledgeable workers on your job, then you need the Ironworkers Local 477. Call Jeb Miles at 256-383-3334 or via email at local477 at bellsouth.net and make sure you tell them that you heard about them on the Valley Labor Report. We're the nurses, firefighters, and claims representatives that help keep our government services running. We respond to natural disasters. We care for our nation's veterans. And we investigate discrimination in the workplace. We are federal and D.C. government workers. And we are proud to serve the American people. Working in more than 70 agencies across the government, we know we can fulfill our mission because our union has our back. Learn more at AFGE.com. Org. Paid for by the American Federation of Government Employees, AFL-CIO. The Laborers International Union of North America, Local 366, is proudly recruiting North Alabama workers to work construction and nuclear plant maintenance. If you're interested, please contact Donna at their training center to start the process. That phone number is 256 415 7452. 
Again, that phone number is 256-415-7452. No experience is needed. Free training is offered, but you must be able to pass a background check and a drug test. Local hiring that grows our community with good-paying jobs that have benefits is their mission. Live better, work union, Local 366, feel the power. Support for this program also comes from the Mid-South Council of Retail, Wholesale, and Department Store Union. Learn more at rwdsu.info. I'm attorney Tommy Senyard. When you've been injured and need help, you need a lawyer who's with you. Senyard Law. You need attorneys always available to take care of you. Senyard Law. And keep you in the loop. It's your case. You need to know what's happening. Senyard Law. And never a charge to meet with us to evaluate your case. Senyard Law. A new firm, but an old name. One that will stay with you every step of the way. Senyard Law. The name with proven results. As labor union members, we face our share of challenges in the workplace. But today, I want to talk about a different kind of challenge, the climate crisis. We've all seen the fury of Mother Nature, the storms that can turn lives upside down in an instant. That's why Hometown Action is launching our Climate Protection Project. We're heading out to 10 rural communities, listening to local folks, and taking action with them to protect communities impacted by climate disasters. And we need you, our union brothers and sisters, to join us. Together, we'll make a difference. Our strength on the job is undeniable, and now it's time to put that strength to work for the planet. Let's protect our communities, our families, and our future. Visit hometownaction.org today and sign up to volunteer for the Climate Protection Campus. is Adam Keller. Appreciate everybody for tuning in. Folks who are listening to us on Apple Podcasts, give us a five-star rating. Help us beat the other podcasts. Folks, if you're listening on Apple, if you're listening anywhere else, then do it too. But particularly on Apple, our numbers are low on Apple. We need to get them up. Apple Podcast listeners, five-star rating for the Valley Labor Report. Do it, folks. Um, want to also give you a couple of plugs because we're going to be ending on um, Thane's speech and then we're going to react to it in the second half of the show. So just want to make sure before we go that we tell you about Labor Notes having their uh, trainings this month. What to do when your union breaks your heart is another one that maybe some people find newly re- relevant. LaborNotes.org slash events. Could be events. timely. Yeah, could be timely. LaborNotes.org slash events. Check that out. Adam is also working with Alabama Arise to develop and host an advocacy training on January 29th. That's a couple of days from now at the downtown Huntsville Library from 530 to 7. If you believe Alabama should be better and you want to know how to get involved, then come on out. You can email adam at alarise.org to RSVP. Alabama Arise is also going to be hosting a virtual action briefing the night before the legislative session starts on February 5th from 6 to 715 Go to alarise.org to find out more and register. If you're a college student, a college professor, or have any connection at all to a college campus, 
you may be interested in hosting a pro-labor event on campus. If you want to do that, then check out Labor Spring 2024, which is an initiative out of Georgetown University. And if you're in Alabama and interested, hit us up and we can help make that connection for you. Um, obviously, uh, 844-899-8857 is the phone number if you want to give us a call and uh, talk to us in overtime or leave us a voicemail throughout the week. Um, subscribe to our newsletters at tvlr.fm and uh, make sure you yeah get on our email list, buy our hat, give us money, tvlr.fm slash store, tvlr.fm slash donate. Don't forget to like and subscribe. Okay, so... Um, we're gonna, uh, like I said, we're gonna react. We're gonna play Sean Fain's speech, a, a big part of it, endorsing Joe Biden, because there's a lot of really good stuff in there. Um, before we do that, though, he had another speech earlier in the week where he hit on several hot button issues, and we wanted to play that as well. Um, and and so, uh, particularly the border issue, because the border issue is really becoming. Uh, you know, the, the conservative media arm is really trying hard to make people care about this issue, and it is veering more and more and more into open, xenophobic, anti-immigrant rhetoric. You know, it's not even, like, at some points, the rhetoric on the right regarding immigration shifts uh, between pragmatic and, uh, and, you know, really kind of morally charged language. And so on the pragmatic end, uh, the pragmatic kind of anti-immigration end, you can hear arguments about, oh, well, it's not good for the economy. You know, I understand they want a better life, but we need to look out for Americans and it's not their fault. But, we, you know, we just can't we just can't handle all these immigrants. It's just we can't handle it right as a country. And so there's like a pragmatic end there. And then on the other end is what we're seeing today. This rhetoric of an invasion, uh, this rhetoric of, uh, you know, the people who are coming across the border are not coming. They're just explicitly denying that these people are coming to make their lives better. They are saying that these people are coming across the border for some reason risking their life, right, to make their this children's trek. children's lives. Their children's lives to make this trek to destroy the country. Like, it's, I mean... I mean, evil, you know, evil kind of stuff coming out. And uh, one of the people uh, uh, putting out this wicked and vile rhetoric is coming from uh, Congressman Dale Strong. <laughs> Congressman Dale Strong in Alabama's 5th District uh, talking about this and saying explicitly, if you believe those 200 plus that I saw coming through the mountain, that they're coming for jobs, they're not. They're coming to destroy America. And this is really a far cry because remember, the argument used to be these aren't asylum seekers. These are economic migrants, right? That used to be the argument. And now it's gone even further in saying, no, these aren't even economic migrants. They are evil people who are coming to destroy our country. And, you know, and, and also in different in, in different instances, they're telling people that, you know, these people want to to kill you and and, you know, uh, uh, you know, sexually, you know, assault your daughters. And I mean, just just the most xenophobic, evil, uh, anti human anti you know christian in the kind of 
orthodox sense of the word. I mean, it's really kind of astounding, some of the stuff that's coming out. And now it's driving this, uh, uh, you know, divide between the states and the federal government where there's a real potential of a constitutional crisis like that. I have never been as worried about the state of the country as I am today. I had always been in 2016 and 2020 of the opinion that some of the rhetoric around Trump and the Republicans veered into histrionics. And that is becoming less and and like, that's becoming less and less true because the danger that Trump and the Republican Party represent to this country is becoming more and more real. Um, and so anyway, Sean Fain expertly, expertly dissected this rhetoric about we should hate immigrants. Let's play this. They try to divide us nationally by nationality. Right now, we have millions of people being told that the biggest threat to their livelihood is migrants coming over the border. The threat we face at the border isn't from the migrants. It's from the billionaires and the politicians getting working people to point the finger at one another when in reality, we're all on the same side of the war against the working class. This gets personal for me. Every time I see this shit on the TVs and stuff about the border security and that being a major issue in this election, it's not. It's a joke. And it's done nothing but to divide the people. Why I say this is personal to me is because when I see destitute and desperate people crossing a border, risking their lives, I think of my grandparents who had a lot easier fate, but at the end of the day, they were still destitute and desperate, but they had to cross state lines instead of federal lines. But they did the same thing. They went somewhere else to find a better life. That's all these people are trying to do. And my grandparents were lucky enough in the early days of the UAW, they didn't tell my grandparents, you're not welcome here, go back to where you came from. They said, if you're ready to fight for a better life, sign your union card and let's go get it. You know, they try to divide us by race. I had the honor last week of speaking at the Martin Luther King Day rally in March in Detroit. And more than anything, Dr. King taught us that the civil rights movement and the labor movement will forever be intertwined. And a big reason we're intertwined and we re-rise and fall together is because as long as the billionaire class has black and white and working class people of all races divided against each other,
the powerful forces of greed and domination will prevail. That's how the forces of corporate greed and the billionaire class use division to weaken the working class. Our answer to that is solidarity. Our answer to that is unity. Our answer to that is union. It might sound simple, and maybe it is. That's part of the game they play, too. The billionaires want to make you think that this stuff is complicated, that D.C. is for people with Ph.D.s and legal degrees and uh, uh, on the end of our time uh, to be able to play this from Fain's endorsement of Biden. And I want to play this this long segment. It's going to be about 15 minutes. We're going to end the show, in the main show on this, and we're going to come back in overtime and react to it. So here we are ending with Sean Fain's endorsement of Joe Biden. And uh, stay tuned. Find us on Facebook and YouTube to hear our reaction and give your comments. So when we talk about this election, let's take a look at the candidates in their own words and their own actions. In 2008, I happened to have a first-class first seat as a negotiator during the economic recession. And in 2008, as you well know, the auto industry faced a historic crisis. We were on the edge of total collapse. We, with entire communities, were being devastated. Hundreds of thousands of auto workers' families were left out in the street. It was our members and our retirees who sacrificed everything to save the auto industry. In that moment, Donald Trump said, and I quote, I think that the unions are really, really hurting very badly what's going on with the auto industry, end of quote. Joe Biden, having helped save the auto industry, said the nation bet on the American auto workers and won. In 2015, when he was first running for president, Trump went even further. He said the concessions we took weren't enough. He wanted to do a rotation in the auto industry of the jobs in Michigan and the Midwest so union auto workers would be begging for their jobs back at lower pay. He wanted to put the race to the bottom on steroids to screw the American working class. Also,
I love the fire. Love the energy. Also in 2015, we have some workers you saw earlier from Volkswagen. In 2015, people may have forgotten this. We won our first election of a group of skilled trades workers at Volkswagen. And we're still trying to organize there today. And you want to know why? Because, like always, in true fashion, the corporate class in Volkswagen defied the law and they refused to bargain. And they did this for one reason. They were dragging it out as long as they could because they knew that Trump's National Labor Relations Board would undo our victory. That set us back a decade. President Biden, on the other hand, has made changes at the National Labor Relations Board that have opened new opportunities for organizing. He has vocally supported workers organizing and said at a UAW event, join, organize, picket, protest. You have a right to form a union and you cannot be stopped you cannot be intimidated. It matters who runs the National Labor Relations Board. If we're going to grow our union and organize the unorganized and help the working class, we have to have the right people in power. But it's not just about organizing. Let's talk about plant closures. In 2019, at the height of profits, GM closed Lordstown Assembly Plant. And GM is to blame for that decision. But then, President Trump stood by and let it happen. Worse, he joined in the beating after telling Lordstown workers, don't sell your houses. What did he do? Trump attacked Brother David Green, who was then president of Local 1112 and is now serving as our Region 2B director. <laughs> Trump said, our union dues were to blame for the plant closure when we all know it was all about corporate greed. Yeah. In 2023, Belvedere Assembly Plant was slated for closure by Stellantis. So we fought like hell to do the unthinkable, to save Belvedere and save a community. And with the power of the stand-up strike, we did that. But what I don't want you to forget is we also, in that fight, 
had the President of the United States by our side every step of the way. Instead of talking trash about our union, Joe Biden stood with us and supported our historic victory to save Belvedere and to save that community. And let's talk about making history. Rarely, as a union, do you get so clear of a choice between two candidates. In 2019, and I want you guys to pay attention to these two slides we're about to show you. In 2019, our members were out there holding the line at GM on a national strike for 40 days. Trump was the sitting president. And I want to show you a picture of what Trump said and what actions he took to help the American auto workers striking at GM when he was president. He said nothing, he did nothing, not a damn thing, because he doesn't care about the American worker. Now here's what Trump did to help the American auto worker in our 2023 historic stand-up strike now that he's running for president. He went to a non-union plant, invited by the boss, and trashed our union. That's right. And here is what Joe Biden did during our stand-up strike. He heard the call, and he stood up, and he showed up. joined us in solidarity on the picket line for the first time in our nation's history. A sitting president has ever done that. He said on live national TV that the big three, and I quote, should go further to ensure that record corporate profits mean record contracts for the UAW and the workers. So that's a choice we face. It's not about who you like. 
It's not about your party. It's not this bullshit about age. It's not about anything but our best shot at taking back power for the working class. U-A-W, U-A-W, U-A-W. Donald Trump is a scab. Donald Trump is a billionaire, and that's who he represents. If Donald Trump ever worked in an auto plant, he wouldn't be a UAW member. He'd be a company man trying to squeeze the American worker. Donald Trump stands against everything we stand for as a union, as a society. When you go back to our core issues, wages, retirement, health care, and our time, that's what this election's about. This election's about who will stand up with us and who will stand in our way? Those are the questions that will win or lose this election and will decide our fate. Those are the questions that will determine the future of our country and the fate of the working class. When I first came into office, we made some headlines by saying that our endorsements would be earned, not freely given. We've said we'd stand with whoever stood with us in our fight. Not because somebody was nice to us, and we want to be nice to them, but because we need to know who's going to put up and who's going to shut up and going even further, we need to know who's going to stand up with us. And this choice is clear. Joe Biden bet on the American worker, while Donald Trump blamed the American worker. We need to know who's going to sit in the most powerful seat in the world and help us win as a united working class. So if our endorsements must be earned, 
Joe Biden has earned it. So when we talk about this election, let's take a look.